Hello and welcome to the Black Flag Podcast. Joining me, to, joining me today is author, editor in chief of LibertyBlock.com, um, powerlifter, paramedic, teacher, and volunteerist, Alu Axelman. Um, so, Alu, tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, my name is Alu Axelman. I'm a pro liberty activist in New Hampshire. I'm a paramedic by trade, but a liberty activist pretty much 24-7 outside of that. I run libertyblock.com where we publish articles, podcasts, videos, and all sorts of content about liberty, mostly about New Hampshire, because as we'll get into in the podcast, I've given up on the rest of the United States. I believe that pretty much no states are savable except for maybe one or two or three states, and the union as a whole is not savable, meaning the union is not going to remain intact, and no state is savable, and the D.C. empire is not savable. So that's why I'm focusing mostly on New Hampshire. So I have Liberty Block and I have a few articles, a few uh, books. I'm publishing my fifth book, I think, uh, in a week or two, as soon as a few more things are done, final edits on the book. And I'm super excited about it. I think it'll be my best book. So I'm super excited to publish that in a few weeks. Nice. Uh, tell us about some of your past books. Just quick overview. Yeah, sure. The first one was the Blueprint for Liberty. I wrote that, it, I think about a year ago, I published it in February or so of 2021, I believe, so about a year. And the Blueprint for Liberty was pretty much a, a pessimist manifesto to the United States. And the reason I wrote it was to convince people of, of one of the biggest issues, convincing the conservatives, libertarians, voluntarists, all the minarchists throughout the United States that we should stop trying to save D.C., stop trying to elect a better person to Congress or elect a better president or Trump or Biden or or anyone, it's George Bush not going to save us. Uh, you know, some people yeah. think George Bush is a great libertarian, or you know, they thought Trump was was very libertarian, and he was on a few issues a little bit, maybe, but he probably has little to no principles, um, and he did very little as far as uh, improving liberty. But the solution is not going to come from D.C. The D.C. Empire, so the federal government, every state, the union cannot be saved from a libertarian or even conservative perspective. Definitely a voluntarist and cap perspective. The United States cannot be saved. We're not going to take over Congress. There's zero chance we're going to get 435 Thomas Masseys into Congress because most districts are not a Thomas Massey district. But even if we did, I think we still would not make much headway because of the judiciary, the surveillance state, the, the deep state, the executive agencies, the president, and who knows what else is going on in D.C., not to mention lobbyists. So even best case scenario, we cannot save D.C. So I wanted to make people realize that the majority of Americans maybe – you know, depending on the exact issue, 60, 80, 90 percent of Americans don't want what we're selling. They don't want liberty. I finally realized that a few years ago. and It's fine. If you were to ask every individual in the United States how they feel about various issues from uh, guns to taxes, education, freedom, economic freedom, 80, 90 percent would support authoritarianism, which is fine. Let them go and live in California and New York and just let us be free in the live here or die state of New Hampshire or let us have a few states, two, three states. So this book is guaranteed to convince anyone who reads it, anyone right of center, so conservative all the way through voluntarist, libertarian, anyone who reads it by the time they finish that book, The Blueprint for Liberty, will 100% agree that the United States cannot be saved and they should focus on one or two or three states because there's, there's it's a waste, it's a futile effort to try to fix the United States. So that was the first book. Then I, I wasn't planning to write uh, you know another book quickly, but Corona Fascism was happening and there were no books about Corona Fascism. And being in medicine for 10 years in emergency medicine, I was seeing these things that were anti-science and seeing, you know, I don't want to question Lord Fauci because he is the almighty, all-knowing God. But some of the things he was saying were maybe questionable. So I, I realized there were no books about it. There was Alex Berenson at that time, Alex Berenson's first little booklet 
I think came out about COVID, but other than that, there were no books about it in the world, I don't think. So I, I wrote like the first full-length book. I went to publish it on Amazon KDP, which look, I did with my first book and Bezos blocked it on Amazon. And it was weird. I didn't know what to think. I got this message on my on my bookshelf on Amazon KDP saying blocked in big red bold, and it was all grayed out, unclickable links. So I couldn't even edit anything, like edit the manuscript. So I was pretty screwed. So I panicked and started calling publishers and seeing if I can go through a publisher. And Defiance Press picked it up, but they took a few months to publish it. So that came out. I have it here somewhere. So they they did publish it, and um, it's been out since then. But I want to update it because a lot more has happened. So that's the Corona Fascism booklet. Um, nice I don't want to update that. Then I wrote The Progressive Solution. I co-authored that book, the third one, with Marcus Ruiz Evans, who's the president of CalExit, one of the co-founders of the California Exit Movement. They're progressive. Um, but I've been working with Marcus pretty closely for the last few years now on CalExit. He's become actually pretty close, and I like him a lot. So he's progressive, and he wants uh, California to leave. So we co-authored a book called The Progressive Solution, explaining why progressives should also embrace secession from the union as well to get away from the policies in D.C. that don't work for them because they don't work for anyone. Awesome. And then what's the book you're working on now? Or Wait, you have two more books, right? Yeah, well, well then I... I we, we're working on a big independence movement. So um, I published this little book. I would call it a booklet. It's it's like $6 on Amazon. It's a little cheaper. It is a little shorter. It's, it is like 10, 15,000 words. So not super short, but it's kind of like a booklet called Articles of Secession. And what I realized, and I wasn't going to write this again. I was not planning to write another book. I was working on Presumed Guilty, but I wrote this a few months ago really quick um, because when we had, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the bill, we had legislation in New Hampshire a few months ago called CACR 32. And it was... Uh, bill that would have placed the question of state independence secession from the union on the ballot. And we actually had nine state representatives propose this bill. So not, we had nine co-sponsors. The max they're allowed to have is 10 representatives. And we had a 10th and then he like went to the hospital um, for an operation and didn't get a chance to sign on. So we really had 10 guys lined up to co-sponsor this bill. Now leadership pressured them massively. And by the time they published it, it was down to like seven, I think, co-sponsors listed as, as sponsors of the bill. Anyway, it would have put the question of independence on the ballot. If it passed the House and Senate, the next ballot, because the only way to amend our constitution and the only way that we ever have ballot referenda in the state is called a CACR, a CACR, where you have a constitutional amendment. So that's kind of the only way to, to do it. And it would have it worked out fine. So we would have amended the constitution to say New Hampshire is a sovereign state and we leave the union peacefully and proceed as a sovereign nation and no longer under DC politicians. And it wipes out the rest of the references to the US federal law. Um, so that was legislation. And we had a public hearing because every bill gets a public hearing. So I'll, I'll send you guys the link and, and video. We all, you know, uh, I don't, I don't want to say storm the Capitol, but we all piled into that room um, for the hearing. And we all told the House committee members, the committee on state federal relations about how we feel about DC, the DC empire and everyone except for one citizen, every other citizen, like, you know, dozens of us spoke in favor of the bill and the legislators asked a few questions. We answered them, I think very well. There are a few questions like, what if the federal government kills you? They should kill you if you want to leave. And we said, we want to leave peacefully. And they said, well, if you leave, they'll kill you. So that was the best argument they had. The rest were even more preposterous. So, but they had a few questions and they, they thought we had done no homework and they didn't realize I had written a few of these books, um, you know, and many articles, like dozens or a hundred, explaining how various systems in New Hampshire would work once we leave the union. The systems would work. How would we handle national defense? It's a legitimate question. And I, I've answered that question, I think, pretty well. And others have answered it very well, like Daniel Miller in his book, Texas. So they asked a bunch of questions and we answered them, but I wanted to answer them in a book. 
So I kind of took the, the 10, 15, or 12 most common questions that we got from legislators at that hearing about how certain systems would work once we separatize with DC, and I put it into that book. I also put up every chapter in that book as articles on libertyblock.com for free, but I did have the book. It's an ebook on, on Amazon, Kindle, and it's a paperback book in case you want to buy that. So obviously, I like books because they can't be canceled. Everything else can be canceled, whereas a book, they can't get from you unless they come to your house and physically um, take, take it from you. What, what was the name of that book again? Well, this is Articles of Secession. Articles of Secession, and, uh, and, and that outlines everything you just talked about. Yeah, it answers all the most common questions I get about secession and, okay. and how systems would work. And these, these are every chapter is a different question that I've been, been asked by people. So at that hearing, the chairman of the committee, Al Baldassara, who's my friend, he's a liberty guy. I like him a lot. Um, he was actually the first state rep sitting rep to endorse me when I ran for state rep years ago. In the primary, he endorsed me. As the Republican leadership, he endorsed me. So I, I like Al a lot. Um, he's a very tough fighter for conservative liberty causes. Uh, but he asked me a lot of questions after the hearing, and he's like, hey, Alu, you haven't thought a lot about this. Um, you don't have a big plan, do you? And I'm like, actually, I'm not big on centralized planning, obviously. I'm voluntarist, but I do have some ideas of how these systems would work. I think we, our defense would work better than ever. Our economy, our transportation, you know, e everything, the currency, it would work better. But a lot of people think that once we leave the union, for instance, currency is one of the big questions I get. And, and I explained in the book, it's a non-question. It's, it's totally zero, nothing to worry about at all about currency. So all, all the 10 or 12 most common questions are in the book. And I'll expand it as I get more questions from people that I think are legitimate questions we should answer. Nice. Any thoughts on that, Jacob? Yeah. I mean, can I get the book on Amazon? <laughs> yeah, everything's, everything's on Amazon. Everything's on Amazon. You haven't been blocked. So no, what is the... What? Corona fascism was blocked. Everything else is on it. But Corona fascism okay. is back because I, as a self-publisher, I have, I can publish stuff. But as a, uh, as a publisher, they have a little bit more power. So, so my publisher was able to get Corona fascism to stick on Amazon. Whereas when I tried self-publishing that book, Amazon blocked it. But everything else under my name is fine. Sweet. Okay. I, th there are so many rabbit holes we could go down <laughs> on that specific book that I... I'm going to restrain myself and not ask questions, but I'm just going to go out and buy the book because I have lots of those questions. Like, yeah, what do you do with defense if we do end up seceding or a state I feel like, secedes? I feel like defense would be easy because you just you could just work with the United States if you wanted to, or you could not work with the United States. Right. And, right. Like it, but uh, so what's the answer to the monetary question? Like what, how would money well, the work? Currency you... one is, is the, the least difficult question. Some of the questions are tough for me to answer. I have to think things through and how it might work. Um, the currency is extremely easy. Once we leave the union, because it's not if, it's when, because either DC empire will collapse within you know, five, 10 years under the weight of its own uh, debt and, and incompetence and tyranny. Um, so we're going to leave in either a few years, we'll secede or it'll collapse. But when we do leave, our currency will be fine. Either we can use the dollar, which I don't recommend, but we can. There's no reason we can't. You know how many countries in the world besides the United States are technically in the unofficial dollar use zone? Um, tons, tons of countries use the dollar officially or unofficially. So people in, in, in New Hampshire, in the Republic of New Hampshire, once we leave the union, the most likely immediately after the separation, will keep using dollars, which is fine. Again, there's nothing, there's no reason, even if it's illegal according to DC, it doesn't matter. We can use the dollars. Um, but also what I think is going to happen is once we leave, immediately we're going to see a uh, quick adoption, a quick spreading, proliferation of the use of other monies, cryptocurrencies, gold and silver. So already as it stands right now today, the New Hampshire, I believe, has more use per capita of cryptocurrencies than any other state in the United States and maybe the world. 
We also have more per capita use of gold and silver probably than any other state in the world. It very, very often, just the other day, I tipped another person with gold backs. We buy things. I've bought and sold things with gold backs. I've bought and sold things with silver. And I've I've bought and sold many things with crypto. One of my jobs, you know, a side job, I got paid in crypto in BCH. Um, so it's, it's very, very common here. Even the normies here, many stores except uh, BCH, BTC, Dash, and a few others as well here. So it's very common here. So people would use cryptocurrency. And once the DC empire collapses, probably uh, simultaneously will be the collapse of the dollar, meaning people will want to get away from it and businesses will not want to accept it because when they empty their cash, cash register in a week, it'll be worth so much less than a week ago. Those $100 will be worth peanuts in a week. So they're just not going to want those dollars. So I think they're going to move over voluntarily to gold, silver, or crypto. Eventually, I think goldbacks are practical, but not perfect for every situation. Crypto is great, but not perfect for every situation. And silver rounds, like silver rounds, not the most practical thing in the world, obviously. Um, not going to carry a thousand of them. Um, and you can't, you split them in half. But I think there will be, ultimately, to be honest, I think there will be someone in New Hampshire who creates their own private currency and let the market sort it out. The market should determine everything, let competition happen with everything, including currency itself. So if somebody makes, if I make the Axelman Bank or the Alu dollar, let it compete. If people trust me that I have, if they audit my vaults and they trust that I have something to back up the IOUs, paper, money, then they can trust it. If they don't trust me because I'm a schmuck, that's fine. And they can use others. Um, they can use the, the SAM dollar and, and there will be competition with private currencies. Ultimately, we'll have like a paper type currency eventually. But I think cryptocurrency could be used in most situations, probably. So, you know, as we have cryptos that have very small fees and and are fast and there are some cryptos that are fast, the small fees and, and, and trustworthy and all that and pretty private. So I, I think the currency issue is not an issue. Again, to start things off, you know, simply the baseline will be we'll use the dollar. So no worse than it is now. But also we can right. use crypto without being afraid of the feds killing us. Also, we can use gold and silver. So have we seen, do you have any examples of this, um, a similar thing happening in another country or an, another uh, sovereign state? Or would this be the first trial and error if this were to occur? If what were to occur? Let's say the secession does happen, right? Um, or when it happens. And then... Uh, like, like how quickly, how quick does the, does the currency sort itself out? I'm not sure. I'm not an expert in, in currency or the history of currency or, or um, even historical secession movements. There are been plenty of, is, is, is there another country, you know, let's say whenever the, the Czechoslovakia, you know, divided it in half, was there an example of them opening up, switching their currencies around? I'm not exactly sure to be honest, well, which currency, when, when they split, which currency they used. Um, okay. Probably the similar one. You could ask Daniel Miller. He might know. Uh, well, like even in the, the colonies and stuff, they didn't always have centralized banks and they didn't always have like good money would push out bad money. And there was just competition in the currencies. So it, it's not I mean, really that. Of... The Confederate States of America, the CSA had their own currency as well. They had their whole own function in government. They functioned yeah. Yeah. as a separate union for four years, I believe. Yeah, that's a good example. So tell us a little bit about your latest book. So presumed guilty, it'll look something like this. I think I'm going to go with the turquoise blue letters. Um, nice. I've been working on it for, I, I think, maybe about a year, maybe a few months. I don't know, probably close to a year. Um, what I realized about a year ago is we all learned in first grade, second grade civics, me too, even in public school in New York, that we're all in the, the great state of, you know, United States of America, this great country. We have due process. We're presumed innocent until proven guilty. We have the presumption of innocence. The burden of proof is always on the government, and it's a great, wonderful system with rainbows and unicorns. 
That's what I learned. But like unicorns, it's not actually true. So in practice, so yes, in the eyes of the law, if you were to ask a criminal court judge, are we presumed innocent? He would say, yes, suspects have the presumption of innocence. The burden of proof is on the government, meaning the prosecutor, the government's lawyer. That's what the judge would tell you. In practice, though, many people are punished. And there are a few different examples in the book. They're punished before being convicted by a jury or pleading guilty. So before being adjudicated as guilty in a court, the proper way with proper due process, there are many ways people are punished. And at first I thought there were like five different examples. You know, there's this example, there's that, there's self-defense. We all know why the USCCA exists, because if you use a firearm in self-defense, even in the most clear-cut case in your own house on video, you're going to be arrested, they'll go to jail, all your guns are taken, you're presumed guilty, and you can hire a lawyer for a few million dollars and try to get out of jail and get your guns back, maybe. So you're presumed guilty. The, the baseline, the presumption is guilt, not innocence. So we do about self-defense, and that's why industries like USCCA and NRA Carry Guard exist. They're literally self-defense insurance for you know, so you can get lawyers because they know that you're going to need essentially legal insurance for self-defense. So a lot of people have USCCA, I think millions. So that's one example. And I thought around five. Then as I was writing the book over the past few years, I realized there aren't like five different areas of law where we're presumed guilty. There are like 26. So the book kept expanding. And now that I, I think is, you know, the final version for now, it's like thick. It's like uh, 67, 70,000 words. So my longest book by far. Um, and it has like 28 chapters. So like intro and conclusion. So like 26 areas of law, 25, 26 areas, one for every chapter where we are totally presumed guilty. And, and so I've been like on a rampage about due process for the past year. I've been a big activist in New Hampshire about secession. And now I'm officially the, the president of the FNHI. So secession is like officially my biggest issue now, but I'm a big gun activist. I'm the biggest gun rights advocate in the world. I think I'm a big advocate on sound money and taxation, education, freedom, economic freedom, privacy, everything, police accountability. I have some people say I'm the most anti-cop guy in the world. Um, <laughs> so, you know, even though, thank God I have a few friends who are cops locally, my police chief doesn't seem to hate me, which is great, but I'm very big on police accountability. So I'm big on a lot of issues, but the last year I've been very big on due process and I want to write this whole book about due process. You know, I'm doing pre-law now, so I'm hoping to go to law school in three years in my dreams. So I've been big on due process for the last year and I wasn't going to write a, a secession book. All my books so far have, have essentially said secession is the answer. Even Corona fascism at the end, I say the answer is secession. That has to be because Corona fascism came from, D from DC. New Hampshire, if it were not attached to DC, would have, have had very little to no Corona fascism. So this book is not going to be about secession, but by the end of the book, I realized like 90% of the issues that I discussed in the book come from DC. They're federal laws or federal policies, federal court cases. A lot are precedent set by, by courts, the federal courts, um, or their federal influence. Like I'll give you guys a, a, a sneak peek. A lot of people think that their, their local city police, like in Manchester, Concord, and New Hampshire, their city police operates sobriety checkpoints and they have drones and bearcats and tanks. No. All those sobriety checkpoints, to my knowledge, almost every single sobriety checkpoint in the United States, even though it's conducted by the police officers who wear uniforms like your city police, they're all 100% funded by D.C. I don't know exactly why. There might be some law saying states can't do it. All the money, look at it, it's from DHS. And you'll see, just research it, grants from DHS, the federal government's Homeland Security Department, to your state or local police, about a million dollars for a sobriety checkpoint, and they have to use it for that. So it's earmarked for that. So they only get the grant. So it's funded by the feds. So what I'm saying is if we leave the union, we might have no more sobriety checkpoints because they're all federally funded. Same with drones. Uh, Portsmouth Police in New Hampshire has eight drones. They were all given to them by the feds, by DHS. So a lot of these things, same with obviously CBP and ICE are federal. The ATF working with, with state police is federal. So a lot of these issues are fed, literally just federally funded or federally operated. 
and or federally influenced, federally coerced with grants and, and so much other stuff. So even the things that people think are local are actually federal. People think qualified immunity is local. It's not. It's a federal doctrine. Civil asset forfeiture is a federal doctrine. When state and local police do it, it's because the federal government has expanded the extended the power to do it to the state and local police. But without the federal government having the primary power and extending it or deputizing state and local cops to do civil asset forfeiture and eminent domain, the two types of straight up theft, it's all federal. So almost, you know, all the, all the seizures and theft is all federal. And so many horrible court case rulings. I, I kind of touch on like 10 of the worst Supreme Court rulings. You guys, oh my God, the Supreme Court has ruled in around 10 different cases that pretty much nobody has any freedom. Screw you all. The federal government has 100% Kim Jong-un, Xi Jinping, God powers over you. The Supreme Court has said this in many, many rulings. So and I, I discussed them in the book. I, I have, so every everything I say in the book is a source to the footnote to, you know, the primary source. So the Supreme Court ruling and brief and all that. So I have like 500 sources in the book. The last like 80 pages are all, are all uh, end notes, footnotes. So I, I go crazy on footnotes like nobody else in the world, I don't think. How many drug laws are federal? Well, it depends so on the knowledge, state, I suppose. Pretty much all of them. So New Hampshire, I don't know if New Hampshire has some drug laws of their own, but the, the whole schedule for, you know, for scheduled controlled substances is federal. And the federal government, that's actually a great point because the federal government has a list of controlled substances. Controlled just means, you know, the federal government controls it, various schedules, you know, uh, one, two, three, four. And um, people think controlled substance means like heroin and cannabis. Obviously, cannabis is in Schedule 1 because it's the most dangerous addictive substance in the world with no medical purposes, right? That's what the federal government says. Um, talk about fake news and anti-science. So, there's, you know, heroin and, and meth and all those controlled. People don't realize there are, I think, four or 500 controlled substances. Pretty much every, every substance, including hormones in your own body, like testosterone, which is a naturally occurring hormone, is a controlled substance. So if you take it, technically... If you take it every day, it's very easy for a lawyer to argue you're addicted to it. If you take it every day, you're dependent, meaning you can't have a firearm. According to the next background check, again, the FBI, if you are addicted to any controlled substance, it says cannabis or any controlled substance, then you fail the next background check and you can't buy or own a firearm. So if you take testosterone every day or like, you know, the radical left wants everyone taking testosterone and or estrogen every day, whatever the opposite gender is, they want you to, you know, convert genders. If you take that, you might not be able to get a gun ever. So... You know, very interesting. A lot, a lot of the medications, common medications, you know, even anti-anxiety meds are obviously um, anti-psychotic, anti-anxiety, anxiolytics. Those are all controlled substances. So if you take any medication pretty much, which 50, 60 percent of people in the United States, according to the CDC, just mental illness, like actual medications for mental illness, according to the CDC, 50 uh, percent of adults in the United States have mental illness. So just there, based on the mental illness and the controlled substances issues in the next background check, just like that, 50% of the United States, probably, depending if they tweak some laws, probably can't have guns. So that's another issue. I discussed a whole chapter on gun control as well. Awesome. So how many – so if we were to take it like step by step, each um, step that where we are presumed guilty. So like first, say you have like weed on you. What would be the first thing that would be presumed guilty Oh, so, I mean, we can go through every chapter here, but yeah, I mean, if, if you have cannabis on you, something that might happen, because that'll touch on a few of the chapters, is the cop will arrest you, and depending on the exact cop and prosecutor and bail commissioner and judge in that case and in that jurisdiction, what might happen is is you might go to a jail to be held, and then I think within 48 hours, you're supposed to see a judge for arraignment or whatever to decide whether you are held until the trial, which will be a, a few weeks or months, naturally, 
Um, or if you could be out on uh, personal recognizance bail and just they trust you to show up, or if you need to put up a, a bond or money, a cash bail as, as collateral to make sure you show up. But what happens a lot with, with and it's totally up to the uh, bail commissioner and or a judge or prosecutor, they all, I think, work together. Uh, but primarily the bail commissioner will decide whether to let you go. So if they just don't trust you because they don't like your face, they could keep you in jail for six months. So you haven't been convicted, but you could be in jail for six months to waiting for your trial. And they could say, well, we don't really trust Sam because judging by his face and he had some weed and, you know, he's a big gateway drug and it's schedule one and he might flee because these cannabis people, you know, we for madness, he might flee and start killing people. So we're going to hold him for six months until trial. So, you know, if you at the trial, if you are adjudicated as not guilty by the jury, then what a lot of people say, including me back when I was a statist is, OK, no harm done. You know, the jury found you not guilty, so you can't complain. And then you might say. I was behind bars for six months. I didn't see my wife. She divorced me. I lost my job. I'm unemployed. And I lost six months of my life with my family. That sounds like a punishment, doesn't it? Right. So, so people don't realize, you know, I, I didn't think about this till I started really like working on the book a year ago. People think if you're found not guilty, nothing wrong with that. You're found not guilty. The justice system did its process and due process. And that's your due process right there. You know, and it worked. You're not guilty, but you've been punished already. So um, another thing when they found cannabis on you, like in that example is asset forfeiture. Anytime that a cop suspects, not even convicted, anytime a cop believes that any property, so if they, they pulled you over in your car, there's cannabis, any property, any asset that's involved in the crime or could be involved in any past or present or even future crime, potentially maybe in the future, they can seize. So your car, totally, if, if the cannabis was in your car, the cops 100% can seize your car. They can also seize all of the property you have. So if you have a pistol on you worth 500 bucks, a few hundred bucks of ammo, your gold, your silver, your phone, they can seize it all very easily before convicting you. In fact, they don't even have to charge you with a crime. They can literally just take your stuff. So we have we have a whole chapter on asset forfeiture where any time, any property involved in a crime related, even like tangentially related in any present, any past, present or future suspected crime, because not convicted yet, you're a suspect, they can seize your assets. Um, and it gets very sickening because you know, cops steal cars. They, they take your car. They don't have to charge you, let alone convict you of a crime. They don't even have to accuse you of a crime. They can just take your car and say, it was potentially involved in a crime I suspect to have happened. And what's really sick is that cops are using the cars for themselves. They're departments. They have lists, police departments, and we have sources in the book. Police departments throughout the United States have lists of cars they like. Cops like SUVs for the captain's fly car so they can respond to scenes. They like some fast cars. They like certain kinds of cars. They have a list saying if you see a Ford Fusion or a Suburban or a really fast supercar like a Lamborghini, seize it. Just find some pretense, say, you know, you smell breath, alcohol, weed, seize it. Take the car because the department wants that car. And they can do that for any other item, a house, a gun. If you have a great rifle, if you can, you know, have a thousand-yard rifle or something like a, a 0.5 MOA rifle, your police department can seize it because it could have potentially been involved in a crime in the past, present, or future. And they can seize it and use it for their department. So, again, the federal government has given this power deputized state and local police to do asset forfeiture, which just alone could have been a book about, you know, just how sickening it is. And that alone is enough reason to want to leave the federal government. Yeah. I mean, so, so just to pipe in here, you know, um, in Minnesota, it's a serious problem, this whole civil asset forfeiture. And as, as I understand it, you might be able to correct me, but what ends up happening is if they do seize money, um, that, that's the most common thing. You might have $5,000 in cash in your back now. Obviously, they see it and they go, oh, it's a weed transaction or a drug transaction. But, heck, you could just be carrying $5,000 because you like to pay for things with cash, right? Well, anyways, they'll, they'll take it. And normally, as I understand, is they, they send it to the federal government. 
they, they and and the government, the federal government kicks back about 80% of it versus if you send it to the state or, or the, the city police department, that fund will just go to the general fund. Does that sound right? Yeah, definitely. Some of the things, the 80-20 the rule, I think, is, is pretty much the standard. They call it equitable sharing. I call it sharing of booty or loot. It's like a, <laughs> two pirates might share the loot or the, the whole crew shares it, but they're stealing. They're, they're pirates. They steal it and then they share it. Um, yeah, they call it equitable sharing. The federal government empowers the states. Whenever they seize something, they um, essentially can keep 80% of the money or the value of the money. If your vehicle was worth 100 grand, they keep 80% of the value and they give 20% of that value to the feds. So it's really sickening. The federal government and the state and local government share it and they're like pirates or, or vultures and they share the loot that they steal from you. It's really sickening. But again, you're presumed guilty, but it's even worse than that. Because if you want to get your, your thing back, like your money, so they stole $50,000 from you, like you said, um, it's very common. So anytime a person has cash on them, they're presumed guilty. And police, the federal government, state, local government has said this. If someone has a lot of cash on them, presume them to be guilty. Assume they're a bad person who got that money as the product of illicit activity, as a crime. And very often someone's in an airport or a vehicle or stop and they say, why do you have $10,000 cash? That's a lot. I think that's too much. I'm going to steal it from you. And we'll presume you're guilty, but yeah, I stole $10,000, but you could get a lawyer, which costs $15,000, get a lawyer to try to get it back. Obviously, it's not worth it. So again, by default, you're presumed guilty, and the process is the punishment because I, I'm not going to spend more money for a lawyer than, than the money that they stole from me to get it back. So it happens with money a lot, with drugs a lot, with, with firearms, with vehicles, with houses. I mean, the, the egregious cases are where a kid, like a teenager, like you know, 40% of teenagers out there, sold some cannabis in the basement of his grandma's home, lived with his grandma, sold, sold some cannabis to a friend once. Way later on, police found out about it. They seized the house from his grandma because the house was related to the suspected crime. Again, I'm being serious. Any asset, any property related to the crime. They could have said the grandma's car is related to the crime because she drove her his friend to, you know, back home to his friend's house after they, they did the transaction. Or, you know, they can seize the car. Pretty much under this pretense, cops can seize pretty much any property in the universe. It's it, sickening. And again, there's no accountability. Now, what's really sick is this, that like in that case, when the case is written in court, it's not called like um, state uh, United States versus Sam, United States versus Axelman. It's called United States versus one Mercedes Benz. Literally look up the cases. That's the name of the, the official case in the court. So it's the United States versus the item. Now, and, and you know, there are cases there's one I link in the book of Mercedes Benz. A cop stole a Mercedes because he wanted a Mercedes for his department. Um, and I said, how can the Mercedes Benz like have a, a mouth and talk and defend itself in court? Obviously, it's preposterous. Um, we're not that anti-science that we believe that cars can walk into a court and testify for themselves. It, the cases against the government, you know, the government with prosecutors, the greatest attorneys, prosecutors, geniuses like Lord Fauci and other, other lords and gods versus a vehicle or cash or a gun or drugs, you know. That can't defend themselves. Inanimate objects. It's, it's so sickening. If you need, you know, all you need to know about this due process issue about asset forfeiture is you have the government lawyers, all the power of the most powerful government in the universe versus an inanimate object. That's the official case. If you look at the actual court cases. Crazy. Uh, so how about we switch gears just a little bit? If we were to have secession it, if, or if New Hampshire were to have secession, how would that look and what would be the reaction of the union? Um, how, what would the process look like? Yeah, that's the $30 trillion question. It's impossible to know. Uh, as far as the process, again, it's unprecedented. 
since like 1860, we haven't had secession. What we were thinking, the legislators who were working on this bill was, if we do a constitutional amendment and it passes and it needs three-fifths of the House, three-fifths of the Senate, then it goes on the ballot in November. And if two-thirds of the people vote in favor of it, that's kind of hard to dispute. No one could say it's illegitimate. No one could say it was a fluke. The people don't support this. If two-thirds of the people and the whole legislature by three-fifths pass it, it's kind of a done deal. You know, it, the court now, even if we did it this way, and we can do it with a simple bill, with simple majorities, but we want to do it this way. That way it's kind of like unimpeachable. You can't say that that uh, there's not broad support for this. Now, once that happens, the federal government, we all know, I'm not under any illusion, the federal government courts will say it's unconstitutional. A federal court, you know, the Ninth Circuit or some circuit court or whatever, Supreme Court will block it. They'll say secession is unconstitutional under Texas v. White or some other BS, and they'll say you can't leave. But again, we expect that, and, and that's fine. They can say that. The thing about leaving is it's it's like some issues we kind of have to obey what they say. If we say we believe that because of the Second Amendment, I can have a machine gun, the court says, no, you can't. Okay. But if we are leaving, the thing about leaving is that we no longer care what you think. And I, I always compare it to a divorce. If you're if you beat your wife, you know, every day for years, like they've been abusing us for years with no recourse, they've only gotten worse, not better. And your wife leaves and you say, No, you can't leave. She's gonna say, Okay, but I'm leaving bye and walks out the door. And you could say, No, don't leave. You know, I'll I'll beat you up. And she leaves. You know what I mean? So if they're leaving, then they don't have to care what you think because they're gone and they no longer care about your authority in any sense, not you know, not physically, not legally, not not emotionally. You're they don't you don't own them anymore. So if a woman can leave her abusive spouse, we can leave DC politicians and the courts can cry about it, but we already left. We're here doing our own thing, living free and thriving in New Hampshire. So we don't care. We, they're going to say it's illegal and it doesn't matter. Now, are they going to actually send men with guns to kill us? I don't think so. I met another person the other day. There are two people in the New Hampshire Liberty Movement who do think that the federal government literally will kill us all if we want to peacefully separate from our abuser. Um, and these two people I respect. One of them is my brother. Um, so people who love liberty, both, I think, both uh, anarchists, both support independence, but they think they're really afraid the federal government will kill us. Daniel Miller, who wrote the book Texit, who's been studying this for decades, me, a lot of others, do not think the federal government will kill us. There's no appetite for murdering Americans in the United States. It would be uh, very unpopular, to say the least, and it would be, I think, maybe even cause rebellion. I, I don't think, you know, there are other things what they can about, do to us. What about January 6th, though? Like, that was just the most basic. I mean, I know it was um, intentional, like they wanted it to happen. For, yeah. But still, it's like they touched the Capitol in a pretty you know, non-aggressive way. And now there's a fence around the entire. Yeah. DC we know capital. that it definitely doesn't take a lot. And I talk about it in a few chapters in the book. I have a whole chapter on, on the insurrection of January 6th. Okay. We know it does not take a lot for the federal government, leftist elites, radical media, authoritarians to refer to us as terrorists, insurrectionists. I know the other day was the anniversary of Waco. They called them uh radical white nationalist terrorists or whatever they called Waco to kill the men, the men and women, the children. So they can very easily paint you as a, a, radical terrorist and they will 100 percent and that's that's one of the reasons why we discussed this in the hearing in, in the open committee hearing a lot of us discussed this and said we're peaceful that's one of the reasons why when i was working and a lot of others working with the legislators and crafting the language of the bill we made sure the word peaceable we peacefully separate from the union was in there it's very important um because a lot of people you know there are a few liberty radicals um who who might be feds who say violence we need to kill all the feds and no a, a lot of the liberty movement i'm you know pro-self-defense, but some are even more pacifistic or total pacifists. There are many people in the liberty independence movement who believe in 
zero violence ever, even in self-defense. So, very, so we're actually a very pacifistic movement. We literally believe that we're being abused. And I've you know written many articles and a few books. I have an article on libertyblock.com, 100 reasons why we should divorce DC. And it lists 100 mass top 100 reasons, because there are more, why we think we are abused, because DC has been abusing us. So we want to leave them peaceably. And again, they're going to say you're terrorists. They see it differently. We say, we just want to be left alone. And they're going to say, but you're a terrorist, so I'm going to kill you. Now, again, they're going to say that, and that's fine. Some, you know, the 12 people who watch CNN will believe them. They'll say, Alu sounds like a right-wing, white nationalist terrorist. He's violent. Let's kill him. But here's the thing. If now that we have media and media, it's it, you can't censor what we have now with um, from Twitter, Snapchat, TikTok, and uh, Signal, Telegram, you cannot stop mass communication, mass media from proliferating around the world in seconds. Even in Shanghai, we're seeing video, tons of video from Shanghai lockdown, the most brutal authoritarian regime besides maybe North Korea. And we're getting video from the dis sickening, disturbing lockdowns in Shanghai. So the the what I'm saying is the United States, the citizens, the 330 million people who are not that pro-freedom, but they some of them are reasonable, they're going to see this. And they're going to see the hearings, people who look normal like me, a normal person wearing a suit, a paramedic, 10 years experience EMS, um, married, we, we have families, we're normal people. In fact, a lot of us have cousins and friends in all the other 49 states, right? I have friends in almost every state. So, you know, we're all kind of related. If they see us saying we are being abused, we've been abused every day for 245 years, we've never had a chance to vote in independence, we want to vote in independence, and if two-thirds of us vote to leave, we want to peacefully separate and live our own lives, we don't want to hurt anyone ever, literally that's all. And if they say, yeah, but if you do that, we're going to kill you, I think the people of the United States will see that. They're going to see, they're watching this on, on TV, they're watching the hearings on C-SPAN type stuff, they're watching on YouTube, and they're saying, wait, this group of people are saying they want to be peaceful, and they haven't hurt anyone, they're peaceful people, they're libertarians, they're pacifists, they're anarchists, they're conservatives, they just want to leave their abuser. I don't agree with them on everything, but they want to leave. And their abuser is saying, if you leave, I'll kill you. Um, that's pretty weird. So that's not cool. Their abuser is going to kill them. Or they just want to leave. Leaving is the ultimate natural right. We talk about natural rights. The ultimate natural right in the universe that every single organism has, every human, every animal, probably every organism has the right to leave, especially when they believe they're being abused. And we can get to the contracts as well. A lot of the legislators said the United States Constitution is a contract that's perpetual forever. And one, it's not. It's not a contract. You can't bind your posterity forever to be slaves, your descendants, 240 years in the future, to be slaves to the ruling class. That's not how contracts work. You can't even sign a contract for your own child, even though you're a limited custodian. Um, definitely not for your grandchild. You can't sign a contract binding your descendants forever to, to, be, to be under a contract to be slaves to the government. But even if it were a contract, guess what? The United States government has violated the hell out of the contract 30 trillion times. So even if it were a contract, Violating a contract, as everyone knows, means null and void, and we can walk away anyway. So the contract law argument is horrific as well, and I've written articles explaining that as well. So pretty much, it's a natural right to leave. We have a right to leave. And I think the people will see that if they want to kill us for leaving our abuser, the D.C. politicians will not get away with that. If they start you know, arresting or killing even the, the most radical leaders of the movement, which I guess I'm one of them now, um, and I'm sure I have a target in my back in some sense, I think the people will, will thoroughly reject that. Big time. And I know DC politicians don't really care what people think of them. They get reelected. They have their ways of doing things. But if there's 100% disagreement and people are extremely angry about it, then it's going to get really bad for them. So I don't think they would actually kill us. What about like sanctions? Do you Bingo. Think just now, paint everyone as no. white nationalists, Nazis, and just do all sorts of sanctions? I mean, like all the stuff they're doing to the people in the Middle East and uh, even like the Russia-Ukraine conflict and stuff like that. Do you think um, any of that will happen? 
Yeah. So, so I'm going to be hundred percent honest because I'm not a good liar and I'm not a good actor and I don't like lying anyway. That is the, the one question that I've had the most difficult time in the world answering. All the other questions are bull crap. Constitution, currency, they're all very easy to answer. If people say, if we leave the union, will they do sanctions or uh, trade embargo? So either sanctions and or full embargo on us. Um, yes, I think it's extremely likely that they would. We've already seen with, with the radical left sanctioning uh, conservative states who are not super duper into transgenders and abortions, and they sanction conservative states saying, we're not going to fly there, support them, no NBA or NCAA basketball in those states. So if we left the union, yes, a lot of the lefty states, the D.C. government um, and a lot of authoritarians will will boycott us, maybe sanctions, maybe even embargo. Um, now, I say that the New Hampshire economy, people don't realize this. A lot of people who don't live here don't know this. We have the number one economy with the best unemployment, the highest median household income, and um, overall the best economy and jobs prospects. And I believe uh, the lowest or among the lowest effective tax rate. So we have, by almost every metric, the best economy of all 50 states. Now, that being said, you guys are all ANCAP, so you, under, you understand comparative advantage. We need interstate trade around the world. If we could not trade with any other state in the world, yes, we would no longer be the richest state in the world. That's the fact. It would hurt. We would survive. We have farms. We have fishing. We have hunting. We have plenty of industry, but we would not be the richest people in the world anymore. And it, it would hurt us a lot if, if they had sanctions on us, for sure. Um, I, I do think, I'm, a ho I'm hopeful that we would still be able to trade with other states in the world. If the federal government sanctions us, would Russia then want to piss off the federal government and trade with us just to piss them off? Maybe. Um, or because they want to trade with us, mutual benefit. Um, would Canada trade with us? Probably not, because Trudeau is, you know, a similar ideology to the D.C. government. Would Vermont, maybe would Maine. Maine just might, especially if um, Governor LePage gets back and he's like Trump, but even even crazier, more radical conservatarian. So he would do whatever the opposite of what D.C. says to do. So Maine would probably trade with us, um, definitely likely. But again, I'm hopeful that we'll have trade. Now, people say they wonder if they'll go to war with us. And I said, the federal government wouldn't go to war with us. Number one, it would be the most unpopular war in history, which my brother reminds me, the Civil War, when Lincoln attacked the South, was extremely unpopular, even in the North. Um, but he did it anyway, and eventually he said it's about slavery and it won some support. So yes, the federal government has done unpopular things. Most of what they do is unpopular. Uh, we talked about you know cannabis and the war in the Middle East, the drug war, the, the police, all that. Um, but overall, I, I don't think they'll do it also because they can't win a war. They can either drop a, a Hiroshima bomb on us and kill everyone in New Hampshire and Mass and Connecticut and D.C., which the D.C. politicians would not be inclined to do, or they can send men with guns door to door to break into the 1.3 million homes in New Hampshire and shoot everyone in the head. They're not going to do it because they actually wouldn't be successful in doing that because we have 1.3 million armed people and that's a lot of people. Uh, so they, I don't think they'd be successful. Literally, physically, they don't have the force unless they drop a bomb. And they're not going to bomb and kill millions of innocent people. Talk about presuming you're guilty. You know, millions of innocent people who just want to be left alone, killing them again. I don't think they'll do that nowadays. They could not get away with it. It would be the least popular thing ever. And the D.C. government would, would cease to exist just because of popularity. They would be seen as the North Korean government and they would lose all legitimacy. So I don't think they would go to war with us. Now, the reason I'm talking about this again is you said embargo. Embargo is an act of war. Embargo, not the sanctions. Embargo means using actual force, military force, Navy ships to block the ports. And anyone who tries to trade in or out, killing them, like bombing them with ships. That's an act of war. So then we're back to that question. Will they declare war? I don't think so. Some think yes. My brother thinks yes. I and Daniel Miller and a lot of others think no. And again, we have to do what we're going to do. If they're going to kill us, so be it. If if you're a girl, if you're a woman, and your husband's beating the hell out of you every day, and you think he might kill you eventually, you're going to leave. Will he shoot you in the back? Maybe, but you know what's the alternative? He's beating you. He's abusing you. You don't want to live there anymore. Leave. And if he shoots you in the back, that's on him. 
Hopefully he doesn't, but it's a possibility. So it is a possibility. They could kill us. The federal government can kill people they have before. Um, one, one of the chapters in the book explains the whole uh, NDAA, Obama Patriot Act type deal, where I think in uh, 20, 2001, 2011, 2014, they keep expanding the Patriot Act and uh, NDAA type stuff, where the, the president can order the strike of any, I believe, U.S. citizen, I think, on U.S. soil as well as foreign soil and just kill them with no due process, no conviction, it, as long as the president says you might be involved in terrorist activities or any foreign activities, pretty much. So if you've ever been involved in foreign activities, which we all are, I have, you know, Tengo Amigos in Mexico, that's foreign, you know. So as long as you're involved in any foreign operation at all, the federal the federal government, the president can order a, you know, drone strike and have you killed. Zero due process. And it'll say terrorism, you know. He might have been involved in terrorists. We didn't have time to do a court due process thing, whatever. Lindsey Graham, a powerful U.S. senator, famously said about this. When they say, I want my lawyer, you tell them, shut up. Something like that. So no lawyer, no due process. Um, that lets us kill anyone involved in terrorism or anything foreign. So, you know, that, that certainly could happen. They could order us all killed right now. But again, we have to do what we have to do and put the burden on them if they really want to engage in violence. Do you think, do you think it... Um... I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this question, but is it less likely that the government might come after you if it's just a single state versus if 10 states decide to secede? Like, do you That's think there's a great safety I, I think, in singularity? I think for the most part, again, I can just take my best guess. I, I think in general, there's strength in numbers. Um, so there's a few different ways to look at it. One state probably will go first, but once one state does it, as they're leaving, I think other states, as soon as the legislature is in session, another state will pass it. If New Hampshire passes this bill, when we pass it, we got, you know, 13 voted in favor next year, it'll be 50, then 100, then we're going to pass it in the two, three, four years. Once we pass it, I think with, within the next session, so within a few months or a year, we're going to see maybe Florida pass independence, maybe Texas, depending how it goes, possibly Wyoming, Missouri, and maybe maybe South Carolina and a few other pretty pro-liberty states, maybe Kentucky as well. Thomas Massey has said or has hinted at secession and him supporting it as well. So, um, and he follows me on Twitter. So, you know, maybe he's very big on independence because, you know, he follows me. And on Twitter, my name is New Hampshire Secession. So, you know, he, he definitely is familiar with secession. He talks about it a lot. So I think once one state does it, other states will be empowered massively. Legislators will be very empowered and encouraged to do it. And they'll realize they won't get killed, won't get the Insurrection Act, and they'll be able to, you know, remain in office and, and not be imprisoned. So other states will do it. And then once, and once one domino falls, the federal government is screwed. And that's why they don't want it to pass. That's why once we get like 50 votes in our house, even like 5, 10, 20% of our house votes in favor of this measure, the federal government will start pouring literally all their resources. You know, they'll print another trillion if they have to, because they'll, they'll want to stop it. They will do everything in the world, like pull out all the stops to, to stop this from happening. Because once one state leaves the union, another state will leave, and then the union will collapse. And then they have no more people to rule over. So think of like a slave owner with 20 slaves. If one slave runs away and gets away with it, the other 19 are very quickly going to run away and then you have no more slaves. So I think they don't want one state to leave because they realize that's the beginning of the end, but it's inevitable. You know, in one year or five years or whatever, a state's going to leave. What do you do with all the uh, the federal land in New Hampshire? Excellent question. Actually, I don't think I addressed that here. I, I, I touch on it with a few of the different chapters, but I'm going to do a whole chapter on that. Thank you. Um, there is a lot of federal land. Every single state has federal land, I believe. Um, out west, the majority of states have you know majority majority federal land nevada is like 98 percent federal land is disgusting um so starting with good old teddy roosevelt he, he started in like 1905 stealing land obama grabbed another millions and millions of acres from utah nevada and trump actually gave most of that back i believe so that was a really good thing he did but yeah the federal government stolen tons of land 
in New Hampshire, they own the whole center of New Hampshire is the White Mountain National Forest. So that's national owned by the federal government. And they also have a few other federal stuff. They have federal courts, obviously a few courthouses. They have a federal prison up north in New Hampshire. Um, and the Pease Air Force Base is federal, which is used by the state air guard as well, the military. Um, and that's like by Portsmouth area seacoast. So they have a few federal installations. The big one is the White Mountain National Forest. It's a lot of land they own um, or technically own. Again, governments shouldn't be able to own land, but whatever. Um, now, I don't have a great answer. I'll just say the, the most common sense thing, which is what everyone would think would happen. Once we leave the union, either that land will remain federal or it will be state land. Um, now, everyone understands, besides really crazy people, I understand when we leave the union, it'll be like a, a divorce with a lot of assets, but times, times you know, multiplied by 30 trillion. So there will be a lot of negotiating to happen. I've been, you know, party to many uh, complicated divorces where you have to decide who keeps all the kids, the assets, the dogs, the debt, the other stuff, and all complicated types of assets. So there will be very long negotiations. Hopefully it won't take decades, but there will be negotiations at least a few months or years. During those negotiations, one of the biggest piece, pieces that will have to work out, the, the people representing the state and D.C. will be federal land. Either we'll give them a few bucks and we'll take all the land. That way they won't have the center of our stakes. That's awkward for everyone. Um, or they'll keep it and they'll have some rights to use it. Right now, the federal government doesn't use the White Mountain National Forest for much, except they have a few rangers there maybe. And they, they let everyone hike there and I think hunt there as well. So they don't do much with it actively. They just technically own the, the ground. Um, ideally, we would take it. And if we have to pay them a few million FRNs, that's fine. So ideally, I, I, if I were at the negotiating table, I would um, very much want to keep all of the land in within the borders of New Hampshire. Um, as far as the Peace Air Force Base, it's kind of on the border of of the you know the seacoast and by Maine and by Mass, if they if they one of the sticking points where they needed access to those runways for their military for strategic reasons to be as close as possible to you know the east to Europe, maybe we'd let them access those air those uh, runways and the air force maybe as part of the agreement. But I wouldn't want it to own the general air force base. But again, uh, the as far as the national forest, hopefully we would keep it. And if we had to, to give some concessions for that, ideally in money, then then um, that could happen. But yeah, there's no simple answer, but ideally we would keep it. But these are all negotiations that would have to happen once we leave. But the big thing is to leave and pass that vote and then start working on negotiating. Awesome. So what's your process look like for researching all of this? My what's, a normal, what's a normal day for you? <laughs> um. Well, I have a setup here. If you could see it, I can take a picture of it. I have two massive monitors here. Thank God. So my wife, who's also the, the chief technology officer for LibertyBlock.com, which I forced her, I mean, didn't coerce. I uh, <laughs> told her to, I don't believe in coercion, but I, I asked her nicely to be the, C, the CTO. So so she's in IT. So she uh, runs LibertyBlock's tech stuff, the website and everything. Oh, um, nice. She bought me this whole massive setup. So I have two very fast, you know, computer, two monitors, a good computer now and a good keyboard. So I do... I have a million tabs on each one and I'm researching, you know, all, almost all day, every day I'm writing and researching. So like for the book and for articles, I'm doing tremendous amounts of research from looking at uh, court cases, other books in, in for this book, for every book I do this, I try to read all the relevant books. So I've read a lot of books about due process and I realized there's nothing like this. There's one book about police. There's one book about maybe asset forfeiture. I bought two books about the Duke Cross case because Title IX and, and the colleges, the colleges have their own justice system. So there's a whole long chapter about that. But I'm not the expert on the Duke Cross case years ago, so I got two books on that. Um, I don't know if I've read them yet, but I have a few other books about due process written by a few of my law professors. So I read books, read articles, look at, read a lot of the court cases, um, tons tons of other stuff on the internet, and just trying to find sources for this to make sure it's all well-sourced. So yeah, as far as a, a day, 
uh, when I don't work, I'll wake up anywhere between like six and, and 12, depending on what's going on. Yesterday, I woke up at six. Uh, I'm actually tutoring someone in, in Espanol. So I, I woke up at 6.30 for that and tutored, flew to the gym, flew there, flew to the state house to testify, which I never do anymore because I have no time. But they forced me to testify yesterday because there was a gun bill that nullifies federal gun laws. So it's nullification, which is this close to secession. So that's my wheelhouse. And guns, like I said, I'm a massive gun rights advocate. So I went to the state house to testify on that. The Senate let me speak way longer than they were supposed to let me speak, I believe. So that was awesome. I appreciate the Senate committee for that. So I spoke on this bill for a while and met some other friends there um, from other lobbying uh, associations. So I was at the state house for a while, flew home, did the gym at some point in the day, flew home, saw my wife, went to Murphy's, another massive, a big Liberty meetup we have every Tuesday in the state. We have like dozens of libertarians in every uh, town. So Manchester, a lot of libertarians go to meet up. So I went there and then came home and saw my wife, I think, for a bit. And then um, worked on writing, wrote an article, worked on the book some more. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what my day looks like. Pretty much working nonstop, 24-7. Try to see my wife once in a while. Um, and I try to um, to relax. I'll meditate for a minute here and there for a few minutes. And I'll go to the gym. And I'm working on saxophone and piano. And I just bought a trombone. So if I can practice that for a minute once once in a while, I'm happy. Because I, you know, that's totally a separate thing where I can relax and just focus on the music. I, I, the last year or two, I'm loving music. So it's a totally different thing where I can relax and just enjoy uh, feeling the music and just, just expressing myself with that. So that's been awesome. I wish I had more time. Again, I wish I didn't have to worry about freedom. I, I hate politics. I love freedom, but I wish I didn't have to fight for it. Um, but it's active. So you got to fight for it. Some people spend a minute a week, but I've been so sucked into it. Now I spend like, you know, 21 hours a day, seven days a week on liberty activism. I wish we had 100% voluntarism, you know, anarcho-capitalism, and I didn't have to focus ever on anything. I would focus on the gym five, 10 hours a day, writing other stuff, personal training, I'm a personal trainer and ASM and all that stuff. I want to open a gym one day in my dreams. If I had money, um, I would focus on spending time with my wife, maybe starting a family, uh, piano, saxophone, trombone, trumpet, clarinet, and guitar. Uh, two of my brothers are guitarists. They're really, really good. So I'd love to play guitar too, but, you know, piano, saxophone primarily. Uh, I would spend so much time on that, gardening, building. I want to be a woodworker one day. So there's a lot I want to do. I want to build a shed, but first I got to get good at woodworking, which I'm not an expert carpenter because I have no goddamn time. So I'm busy fighting for, you know, against tyranny. So I wish I had more time. I have a billion projects I want to do. You know, the house itself needs a lot of projects to be done. I just, this comes first, but I, I have so many things I want to do. I can't wait till we finally achieve the Nirvana, you know, paradise freedom <laughs> hopefully one day in our dreams. It's never going to happen, but in Utopia, I have so like a lot of people think, what are you going to do? This has been your life for five years. What are you going to do when we have freedom? If we do, I have plenty to do. My to-do list never gets done. I could just spend 10 hours a day on, on just, you know, saxophone and piano because I, I love it. So I could spend just the time on that, just time with my, my wife, traveling, uh, you know, reading the million books I have in my library that I haven't read yet. So I have so much to do. I just, this kind of comes first, but I try to get that stuff done too. Nice. Um. Any final questions, Jacob? That's Punch Pirate. Punch Pirate. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, this is enthralling. And by the way, I'm going to buy your book uh, just as soon as I get off this call. The Articles of Succession. That look, that sounded really interesting to me. Thank you very much. And, and the, the the prequel to that is the Blueprint for Liberty because that kind of sets the stage for why we need secession. Why right. can't we save America? A lot of my friends who are kind of new to activism, conservatives, libertarians, even voluntarists say, let's save America. Let, you know, why New Hampshire? Let's go bigger. Let's aim big. Let's save the whole America. And I say, no, you know, I've been doing this like 24-7 for five years now, and I've realized more and more every day we cannot save the whole America. We have to focus. We have dilutional futility. We're all diluted. There are a few libertarians in every state. So 17 libertarians in every state is not going to win anywhere. 
But if we have a few thousand focusing on New Hampshire, we can get wins. And like I've written a lot of articles about, we've gotten tons of wins. Over the last 10 years, New Hampshire is the only state that has consistently moved towards liberty. We are decreasing the state. Our state budget hasn't increased. Twice in the last few years, we've had a year-over-year -year decrease in state spending. Our whole state budget is $6 billion a year. You know, it's, it's like the top probably bottom five in all the states as far as state spending. We're Six cutting billion? taxes. Yeah, we, we cut every single tax this year. We eliminated the tax on interest and dividends. Totally gone. We're eliminating it. Oh We're getting God. rid of tolls. We've torn up at least two tolls that I know of. Getting rid of the tolls. Uh, it's amazing. No state's doing this. We're expanding education freedom accounts. We're, right, we're expanding uh, getting rid of licensures. So a lot of uh, various types of jobs, occupations that needed licenses, we're getting them every year, gutting them, totally getting rid of licenses for a lot of jobs. So every year we're minimizing the state and expanding personal liberty. So because of the Free State Project, FSP.org, we're winning. Liberty's winning in New Hampshire. It's the only state I think it's winning in. So that's why I say focus on New Hampshire. So for anyone who doesn't yet believe in secession, they say we can fix the whole America. That's why I tell them to read the blueprint for liberty. That's why it's so important. Um, so that book covers, it goes through every issue and explains on almost every issue, the United States doesn't want freedom. Most people don't want freedom. They want authoritarianism. Um, and increasingly, it's trending towards them loving more authoritarianism, not less. So the United States is not getting more libertarian. It's getting more authoritarian every year. So, And I have graphs in every chapter, and the trend looks like this. Tyranny is going up. Gun control going up. Taxes going up. And I, you know, I go through everything, and it's getting worse, not better. So the paramedics, we, we, love, we deal with trends a lot. We look at the patient and the vitals and everything. We look at the trend. Are they getting worse? Let's do something different. Are they getting better? Let's keep giving them the medication, right? So if they're getting worse, we stop that medication. Maybe it's not working, different ideology, allergy, something else. So you look at the trend. If the United States is trending in the wrong direction, if taxes are going up every year, there's no reason to believe, unless, unless there's some other factor, there's no reason to believe that it'll reverse course. People think, no, we're going to turn the train around. It's hard to turn a train around. Unless you show me evidence for why you think it'll turn around, why would I believe that we're going to suddenly have less gun control in a year? Well, because Trump's going to win in 2024. Yeah, that, that's not good evidence. All the evidence shows that he will do more gun control. What he did with bump stocks was the single worst act of gun control in history of existence, besides maybe the NFA itself. Other than that, what he the way he did bump stock ban was probably the worst thing ever done by the federal government in regards to gun control. So, so Trump is not really a great friend of gun rights or liberty in general. So there's almost no reason to believe in any area, very, very few areas, does overall freedom improve throughout the United States or on the federal level. And legalizing weed on a federal level is is the bare minimum of a liberty oriented. Uh, yeah, that's going to happen. I think every state's trying that's that gonna way. That's going to happen. <laughs> I, I thought it would have happened by 2022, to be honest. The federal government's going to like deschedule it down to like schedule four or totally get, get rid of the, the uh, control of cannabis. I expected that already. I think almost every Democrat and half the Republicans realize that's the popular issue. Um, so in, in the, the biggest polls, the, the only survey uh, company I trust really is civics.com. C-I-V-I-Q-S.com. They do massive randomized scientific polling and it's dynamic and it's hundreds of thousands of people across the United States. So it is pretty good polling. And they show that on almost every issue, guess what? The union is very polarized, 50-50 on almost every issue. Look at look at guns, abortion, BLM, everything. 50-50, 51-49, very, very tight. On one, the two things, there are two things that are that are overwhelming majorities people support. One is cannabis, 70% to 20%. 70% support it being legalized, I believe, and 20% support it being banned. So 70%, 20% massive margins in the political arena. So the federal government sees that. They're going to totally legalize it soon. The other issue where almost everyone in the United States agrees on, which is rare, they agree that the union is not working for everyone, that the union doesn't work and we need to secede. You know, I added the last word, but, but almost everyone agrees. I think 67% to like 28%. 
agree that the United States is heading in the wrong direction. Meaning, you know, people realize that one size fits all for 330 million very unique individuals in 50 different states that all have their own culture, their own sovereign states they should be. Uh, people realize it doesn't work in one union with one set of laws. You can't have one set of laws with two or three groups diametrically opposed to each other. It's at least one or both sides will be extremely intolerant of those laws. You just can't have one size fits all for uh, 330 million people. The only other countries bigger is China, and they don't have a lot of liberty in India. They don't have liberty or prosperity. So it's, it's not working very well. You can't have 300 billion or a billion people with one set of laws. It does not work. So say someone listened to this and was extremely fascinated the way we are, and they bought all your books and read them. Um, where would they, how would they get involved? What's the easiest way to get involved? And then we'll wrap it up because we're at the top of the hour here. Yeah, thank Guys, you. I, got, I actually got to head out right now. So Dude, yep, it was really great here in Yalu, and I'm, I'm going to go buy your book right now. Thank you so much. <laughs> Bye, guys. So, yeah, they, they can check out all the books on, on Amazon. If you look up my name, Axelman, um, I would ask them to buy the books, and if they like them, please review them. The reviews are super important for the Amazon algorithms. Um, you can get in touch with me at alu at libertyblock.com or aluaxelman at gmail.com. Um, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and, and all the social medias pretty much. And to, as far as getting involved, I would say – if you live in New Hampshire, just you probably know me already. We all know each other in the Liberty Movement here, even though it's thousands of us, but we mostly know each other. Um, if you don't live here yet, what the hell are you waiting for? Move here. Um, this is where Liberty's winning. I think it's, it'll be the last stand for Liberty in the world, to be honest. Um, if you can move here, move here. Everyone has good excuses. I was in New York City. I had the best job a paramedic could have in the world. I had the best medic job at the best hospital, I think, in the universe. Um, and they paid very well. I loved it. I was very comfortable. But I, I moved here for liberty because I wanted more liberty, and I don't regret it for a second. I'm going to get a tattoo saying no regrets. So <laughs> so um, I think you should move here. People have good excuses. They say they have kids, they have jobs, they have this, they have the other. You know, there are plenty of good reasons. I had friends. I had, you know, family and, and a great job I was at for a while. Um, you know, the best job in the world. I was all set up to go to Hofstra Medical School if I really wanted to. I was in the system already. Um, I, I moved here for liberty, and it was the best decision ever. So move here and then get involved. Check out fsp.org. Um they have a lot of info, the Free State Project, and they explain why this is the one place liberty is already winning, and you can help accelerate the winning of liberty here um, because your state most likely can't be saved, and the federal government sure as hell can't be saved. And check out libertyblock.com for tons more information about independence and freedom in general. Awesome. We'll check out all that, and thanks for joining us on the podcast today. We'll catch you Thank later. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure.